So uh, I have a confession I have to make to you, uh, and I'm going to admit it's a, it's a little embarrassing, um, but I'm hoping that this is a safe place because y'all love me and uh, therefore you'll help me through it. But I think there have been times throughout this Ephesians series as we've been going through the book of Ephesians where I've had a hard time actually believing that the reality that we've been talking about, that that reality is actually real. And if you've been around with us for a little while, you know that the entire Ephesians series is ordained, like it's not oriented around this fact that because of what Jesus has done, we live in a new reality. But I'm going to be honest with you, again, a little embarrassing, but I've had a hard time sometimes believing that that reality is real. And I know what you're probably going to say or probably thinking, Pastor Pete, like if you, if you have a hard time believing, then what are we supposed to do about it? And that's why I told you, I know it's, it's embarrassing, but I mean, I think considering all the things that we've been saying and preaching, I think it's understandable that you and I, or in this case particularly me, that we've had a hard time maybe believing fully that this is real, right? Because we've been told that we've been chosen and adopted by God, made sons and daughters to his kingdom, that God is putting the head back on everything, summing it all up underneath Jesus. That he's made us who were dead, not only alive, but his masterpieces, his poema, his handiwork, created for a purpose. All that he prepared for us beforehand from the very beginning. And somehow, that as you, as we, you and I, normal people, go and preach the gospel to people that hated people, people who hated each other, people who despised each other, would somehow become one family, and that in that one family becoming one, though people hate each other, even the heavenly realms and the heavenly angels and the powers will know the wisdom of God. It's a mouthful, and that's the reality that we've been preaching, and sometimes it's a little hard to believe. But as Pastor Goose reminded us last week, thank goodness... That as Paul prays, that when we bow our knees in prayer and ask that God would fill us with his strength and the awareness, right, that we can know this love, that through the spirit and the power that he gives us, we can actually comprehend this reality, this love, how deep, how long, how wide, how big it is. And even more, that the one that we are praying to, Jesus, can do far more than we could even imagine that he would do. Which means then, even if you can't believe sometimes, that we ought not fret. That even if you're like me, that you have difficulty at times believing this truth. Seeing that what you find is real when you put on the glasses that Jesus gives you through Ephesians. That what you see is real. That Jesus has us covered. That as we pray, trusting in God, bowing our knees, he will ground us. He will root us. He will deeply plant us so that we can know his love that surpasses all that we can understand. Which is to say, the new reality that we've been talking about is indeed real. And God will help us to believe it and see it. And that the more we see it, the more we will believe that it is indeed real. Right? Maybe in your Bible studies, for those of you in the high school uh, side, you might have been looking, looking at what is realistic, right? And a lot of times your parents will say to you if you're aiming too high, like if, for instance, if Alvin says, you know what, mom, I'm going to go to the NBA. Sorry to crush your dreams, but she'd probably say, if she spoke English, she'd be like, Alvin, let's be real, right? And that's to say that you need to comprehend what's actually real and what's not. But for us to say, let's be real, let's get realistic, is to, in fact, account for the fact that God has done certain things. 
and the reality that we live in indeed make us, as broken and as crazy as we are, God's sons and daughters. And that indeed what you and I do when we preach the gospel, that people who hated each other will indeed become one family under him. And that will convince not only the world, but even the heavenly realms that God is indeed real and his wisdom is true. That is what the first three chapters of Ephesians is all about in a nutshell. And as we go into chapter 4 and on beyond today, the questions that we must ask is, now that we know what the reality is, now that we understand that Paul has told us what this reality is, now what? What happens next? And the next part of the equation is absolutely critical because it's where all of this stuff that we've been throwing at you, the reality and the, and the scope of the reality and what makes life real will indeed start to actually maybe realistically and authentically make sense. It's why Paul says, therefore, I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, which is to say the calling and the reality that we've been giving you. And we've been telling you, and on the sermon banner, you see the eyeglasses, right? And it puts things into focus. To say what you've been seeing as real, now you have to do or walk or do something to the calling that you've been called. It's Paul's way of saying, now you know, what are you going to do about it? Because, you know, the G.I. Joe's a long time ago taught me, now you know. And knowing is half the battle. Now, I always like, that's awesome. Because that means knowledge is a great thing, but... Then I realized, wait a minute, a minute. If knowing is only half the battle, there's another half that I got to figure out. So what's that other half? It's like if you win the lottery and you're $75 million richer. Cool. Awesome. Now what are you going to do about it? That's actually important. Or let's say you get a really fancy car and you have this amazing car that you can drive. What are you going to do with that car? How are you going to live into the reality and how does it change? What's the other half? Or as I said, if Alvin were to become an NBA player, just because he dreamt of being one and got there, this question still remains, now what? How are you going to work? Isaac, don't shake your head. It might, just kidding. Actually, shake your head. It's not going to happen. It's okay. It's okay. I, I, I dreamed it too, and I realized that, that wasn't going to happen. And I'm taller than you, so you know, it's, it's okay. This is what Paul is getting at. Alvin and I are close. We're okay. This is what Paul is getting at. He's saying things have changed. Jesus has lived, he's died, and he's resurrected, and he's ascended. Everything is different now. Now it's time to live in the difference. Now it's time to live in the fact that your world has changed. In the next three chapters of Ephesians, Paul is telling us the how. And the first step that we'll encounter today is walking united, or united in Christ. Did you get that? You and I. So if you have your Bibles, open up to Ephesians chapter 3 or 4 with me, and then We'll read verses 1 through 16, and as always, the words will be on the screen if you do not have your Bible. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. Actually, for the sake of time, we're going to read uh, up until verse 6 back there in the, in the uh, AV crew. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. I apologize for truncating the word, but for time's sake, we'll cut it a little short. Therefore I... The prisoner of the Lord implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which, with which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. Being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. This is the word of the Lord. 
thanks be to God. Let's pray together and discover what Paul is trying to tell us today. Father, would you help us to explore this word, to help us to understand what it means to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have received, to walk united in Christ and what that does in our lives and how it matters. Would you speak to each and every single one of us one by one, whether young and or old, and indeed help us that if anything, this picture that we see here in this sanctuary is indeed a picture of the unity you are calling us into and help us to indeed step into it, walk into it, and walk daily, Father. For all those who are hurting, who need your love this morning, we pray you would give it to them. Spirit, would you be here to speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now the main question, and I've kind of laid it out for you already, is what does it mean to walk in unity? What does it mean to walk in unity? And then there's two sub-questions that I think you need to answer to kind of get to the bottom of that. And the first question is, why walk? Have you ever wondered, like, why does Paul say walk in unity? That doesn't seem like, I always thought of the words maybe behave or act or live maybe might have been better. But he says walk in unity, right? Why not make a, use another word that makes sense? And then secondly, how do you walk in this unity, it's cool to walk in unity if you know what that means, then how do you do it? Okay, so question number one, why walk? What, is, what does walking in unity even look like? And then how do you walk in unity? So walking in unity, what does it look like? Now, if you are a Bible nerd like me or Pastor Goose, you'll study Ephesians and you'll understand that the first part, chapters 1 through 3, and the second part, chapter 4 through 6, are kind of a little different. First, 1 through 3 will tell you what this reality is. We've been talking about that. And then 4 through 6 is where they say you need to apply this new reality to your life, right? That your practical application, and maybe you might have heard that a lot in church, the practical application of how you make this real and true for you, right? It's like this is how you apply this to your life. Now, all of that sounds good, but I think Paul isn't telling us to apply anything. That rather he's telling us to walk in it. Now, you might be saying, okay, Pastor Pete, you're doing it again. You love to nitpick these words and talk about little meanings, how they make a difference, but I don't see the difference. What is the difference? But I think that there is indeed a big difference, and it's true. I do sometimes nitpick at the details, and sometimes they may not make a whole lot of sense, but this one, I really believe, makes a difference. Here's why. Because to apply the truth or apply the reality to your life means that until you choose to apply it, it's not real. Does that make sense? It'd be like the lottery example. To apply the reality that you live in once you live, once you win the lottery, to apply it means until you apply it, it's not actually real. That you have to do something about it. Which means then that the new reality that Christ has won for us has no meaning until you and I do something about it, which is absolutely nonsensical. But to walk in it is to recognize that the reality is real and to walk in such a way where you best navigate it and best realize the reality. To navigate the reality by walking this way, in this direction, following this guidance. It'd be like the Houston weather, which as you know is hot 10 months, if not 11 these days, out of the year all of a sudden flipped with Michigan's weather. And if you've never been there, it's cold. It's frigid. I'm going there in January, and I'm scared out of my mind. I'm looking for winter coats online, and then I think to myself, I'm going to buy this winter coat and wear it literally for five days, and then I'm going to do nothing with it probably forever because I'm never going back to Michigan because it's frigid. But it'd be like recognizing that the weather has changed and then doing nothing about it and freezing or worse. 
So what Paul is helping us, trying to help us do is to understand you're not applying anything. And it's a little tiny mind shift that you must do, but I think it's important. What we're doing is rather recognizing that, you know what, the reality is real. And we have to find a way to walk into it, to navigate the reality. It'd be like saying the road here, over here, the park road got closed. Or during the flood, if you know, Highway 6 up above our church got closed all the time. You'd be like, you know what, that's not real. I'm just going to, no, 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 no. Then you would drown. Now that the reality has changed, how are you going to walk into it? I think that's why Paul used the word walk. So avoid using that word apply, I really hope, for you. But the second, and maybe the most important, how do we then walk, not apply, but walk into this unity? The first thing Paul tells us is to walk worthy. He says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling you've received. Now, I recognize that this word worthy for some of you might not be one you like. Because to be worthy of something is to do what? Oh, sorry, that's not a rhetorical question. Someone answered. To be worthy of something means that you have to do what? Earn it, yeah? And to earn it, you got to measure up, right? So whatever this thing is, the standard is, to be worthy of it is you have to earn it and you have to measure up. And of course, if you don't earn it, if you don't measure up, then you won't ever be worthy. It's telling us that the status is here, you need to be here, but if you're not quite there yet, then you're not there, and that's a problem. And I think we can all agree, all around in the world around us, everything feels like this great pressure for you to be worthy or to measure up to something. If you're students in middle school or in high school, you're always afraid that you're not worthy, you don't measure up, that you're not good enough to get into A school, B school, C school, you're not worthy of this, you're not worthy of that. But interesting, the word worthy, which is axios in Greek, literally means to bring up the other beam of the scale. If you've ever had those old school scales, it's like a seesaw kind of, right? You have a weight on one side and then you have to put something on the other side to kind of bring it up and then the thing, if in balance, equilibrium, they kind of hang out together like this and they just balance, kind of doing this. The word axios really literally means to bring up the other beam. It means to balance with or it means to fit in. Something back in Jesus' time in the Greek, to be worthy meant that you fit in. Simply that you were bringing equilibrium or bringing balance to something that was unbalanced. Which is to say that you're, all you're doing is fitting into something that already exists. That you're not actually making anything of yourself. That you have to somehow find a way to make it all work. So to walk... In unity is to balance in the unity. And as we talked about, because Jesus is summing everything up, that he's the head that's being put on the world that's running around, like without head cut off kind of thing, that as he's making enemies into family, that he's making haters into lovers, as God is doing all of this, all he's asking you to do is that's the reality. How are you going to balance into it? How are you going to fit into it? He's saying, will you balance it out? He says, don't worry about measuring up. It's already been done. All you have to do is follow and fit in with that which already is. For me, when I read this, there's an incredible weight that gets lifted off my shoulders. Like this, this freedom of not having to measure up. That the gospel isn't something that tells you that you have to measure up to a standard, but rather you just have to fit into that which already exists. Which is why then he says, secondly, he says, be eager, be diligent, and be zealous to do what? 
to maintain the unity. In chapter 3, Paul says the mystery of the reality is that God is making Gentiles and Jews, people who hate each other, into a family. I suggested a few weeks ago that it would be like today suggesting that terrorists and Americans become one family. That's the, the, the hatred that existed between those two groups. And since the reality, right, is unity, and the reality is God has brought these people together and made them into family, all he's saying is all you need to do is to maintain it, to preserve it, which is to say you must not and cannot create unity. And again, maybe so, it maybe sounds like a, a little slight difference, but it's a huge difference. You and I aren't called to make unity. You and I aren't called to make all these people, young, old, rowdy, quiet, introverts, extroverts, all these people. You are not called and we're not uh, commanded to say we have to make us united. No, he's saying you have to maintain the unity that is already there. The unity is a given. It is a new reality. And I think it makes sense. I can't create unity. I'm too self-preoccupied for that. I tell my wife all the time. Honey, I love you, but you're selfish. You can't create unity. You can't create a good marriage. We have to hope that the marriage, because it's God-ordained, that is indeed united, and we have to do something to maintain it, to preserve it. So then the question then becomes, what are we maintaining? Or, or what, is that, what is there to maintain? Because if we're being honest, what we look out into this group, and I know, I get it. We've been starting this intergeneration, intergenerational thing for a little while now, and you might look at me like, this doesn't seem united. This looks like a hodgepodge of a bunch of different stuff. Old people are being like, there's too many young people, they're too loud, and they're too rowdy. The young people are like, the old people are too old and old and old, right? And so how do we do? Well, then that's what Jesus tells us. He said there's one body, he says, one body already. It exists. Everyone who belongs to Jesus, everyone who calls themselves a son and or daughter of God along together make the body, which means that not every single person always has to get along with each other. Not every single person has to like each other all the time. All that really doesn't matter as long as we are actually understanding that we actually still mean that we're one body and that we must maintain this. And he says you must be eager and diligent or passionate, zealous about doing everything that you can to maintain the unity that the body already has. And I think simply what Paul is saying is you got to show up. For some of you middle school, high school folks, and even the older ones, I hear all the time, I don't want to go to church anymore because I don't have any friends. I don't have any church anymore because everyone's mean. And that might be true. It most likely is. And you know what? I'm going to be dead honest with you. Just straight up, there are mean people in this room, including me. Yes, it is going to be awkward sometimes or a lot of the times. Part of it because the group can be awkward to you and part of it because you are awkward. But what Paul and what God is telling us is that we have a unity in Christ. And what you must do is to step into it. you got to show up sometimes. I see this every year when we go on missions. Every year when we go on missions, there's this random group of people who never really knew each other except for maybe like three or four. And the entire time I'm thinking, you know what, this group of three or four is always going to be hanging out together. And that's never the case. Because we show up, because we understand that we have one goal, one focus, unity happens. And if you think it's easy, it's not. And that's why Paul says, he says, do it with all humility, gentleness, patience, and tolerance, which actually in Greek means long-suffering. I mean, like, can I get an amen just one time about the long-suffering in church? Ooh, I like that. I should do that more often. I mean, no matter what group you're in, even your families. I mean, like, seriously, like, 
Like, can I get an amen to the fact that it's hard? You got to have humility, gentleness, kindness, and long-suffering to make that work. And that's your family. That's your blood. All that to say is if we're going to be a body and we're going to make this work, then you got to show up. You got to try to fit in. Now all of a sudden we're going to get amens like 25 times every sermon. Okay, God, I'm sorry. <laughs> Apologize. It's going to require a lot. And by a lot, I mean a lot and a lot and a lot and a lot of humility, gentleness, patience, long-suffering, all these things together. Not just one at a time, but all of them together to maintain this unity. In the one spirit, as he says. The one Lord, the one Father, the one God. Who's done all the work to give us the unity. And then Paul mentions a little later, he says, one faith, one baptism, one hope. And I think this is where it gets really cool. Because again, I think the, 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 the story in church has always been that you and I have to be something. That you have to measure up. That if you don't measure up somehow, that you can't walk into this place. That if you've had a terrible week of whatever it is that you think you've done that's terrible, that you can't come into this place and worship. Or if you're not good or you can't be up here on praise team or if you're not this and you can't serve or whatever the case might be. But Paul tells us that there is one body. We are united. Under one God, one Father, one Lord. And he says there's one faith, one baptism, one hope. Now I think most people will think that that means we together collectively have this one faith. We collectively together are baptized by the Spirit together kind of, right? And then that we have all together this one hope. And while that's true, I don't think that quite captures what Paul is talking about. My professor is the one that saw me, helped me to see this. He says, and I agree, he says that though we collectively do have one faith in God and we do have one hope in God, and that we do indeed are baptized by the Spirit one time like all together. He's saying that the one hope, the one faith, and the one baptism isn't actually talking about our hope, our faith, and our baptism. But Jesus' hope, faith, and baptism. That Jesus as the one Lord has the one faith which is greater than all the faiths. Is why in verse 13 he says, until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. That word of, again, a little semantic stuff, but that word of is literally meaning of the faith and of the knowledge. So Paul says, until we attain, until we, until we fit in with the unity of the faith and of the knowledge that Jesus has of God, then we will not have the unity that he wants us to have. Which is to say, and if all that was confusing to you, follow me here. Jesus is the great believer whose faith is the only one that has never wavered and or faltered. The only one who's always believed, always trusted, always stood. And that this faith, one that death on the cross could not defeat, is the thing that binds us all together. That's why we have the unity. Which means that you don't have to have the faith all the time. Because when you step into this place, his faith is the thing that covers us all. Same thing with his baptism. When he goes into the river in the Jordan, right, when John the Baptist baptizes him, right, and the doves come down and then and the voice comes out, this is my beloved son, right, I love him, listen to him. That his baptism is when he goes and says, you know what, I'm going to fully become human in this moment. Repent for all of humanity Take on this baptism and then come out of the water anew, repenting and believing for all of us. Which is why then his hope, the hope, as it says in Hebrews, 
The hope of the joy set before him is the reason why the cross did not defeat him. And he preserved or persevered through that. Maintain this unity. Now, for the smart people out there, just kidding, all of you are smart. You might be thinking, okay, pastor, you almost did it, but I caught you this time. You're doing one of those things again where you act like you answered the question, but you didn't really actually answer the question. Because you told us that we have to maintain it, but you didn't really tell us how to maintain it. So how do we maintain it? How do we actually maintain this unity that we have with the one faith and the one baptism and the one hope of God? Knowing that we're this one body together. And I think there's one word. And again, I get this from my professor, and he's taught me a lot. And he says, the one word is this, remember. I think Paul could have added one more one, O-N-E, to this list, right? One faith, one hope, one baptism, one Lord, one God, one Father, through and through. And then I think he could have added one more one, and that's one meal, the communion meal. If you notice, when you walked in here, there's bread and wine. It's grape juice, don't worry. Some of you are like, oh. But when Jesus gives his disciples the meal, right, and you know the story, right, in the upper room, he tells them, he says, this is my bread, right, this is my body. Take the bread, this is my body broken for you. And you'll hear that when you take communion today. You'll also hear, he says, this is my, this, this uh, cup that I pour, it's my blood spilled for you. And you'll hear that too when you take communion today. And all of it through and through at the very end, he says, do this. Take this bread, take this wine, my body and my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. Eat the bread, drink the cup, all in remembrance of me, in remembering me. I always found it fascinating that the one command he gives during communion is to remember, which is him and which is Jesus' sneaky and, uh, you know, uh, creative way of saying that we forget. That even as cool as communion is, that we forget. But then the question that you got to ask, and this is where we finish, is remember what? What do we forget? First thing that we must remember is that anything or that what binds us together, excuse me, what binds us together in this new reality is infinitely greater than anything that threatens to divide us. And what binds us together? I just told you. Not a trick question. It's the answer in every answer, every question in church. Jesus, thank you. If Jesus is the thing that binds us, what could possibly be more important than Jesus? If Jesus is God Almighty, Son of God, come to earth, if he lives, dies, resurrects, and ascends, if he is the one and his actions are the thing that bind us together, what is greater than that? Tell me. Is there anything greater than that, truly? And I quote my professor again. He says, we do this in the church. He says, we major in the minors and minor in the majors. We tend to treat the little stuff, the minor stuff, that are indeed important, but we tend to treat the minor stuff like they're the major stuff and lose sight of what indeed are the majors. I mean, I got a question for you, and if you're a Christian, ask this to yourself. Think back to when you became a Christian. Think back to when you gave your life to Jesus. Think back, to, and if you're not a Christian, think back to maybe a moment where you thought or the reason why you come into this place maybe. And think back to that time when you became a Christian, when you actually said, Jesus, I love you, I want to follow you. And ask yourself, what made you make that decision? Was it the beautiful voice of the person who was speaking? And by the way, I have a really nasty sounding voice, so that's not it. 
Was it the musicians and the songs they sang? No. Was it the style of worship? Was it who was in the room, whether it was all middle schoolers or all high schoolers or all college people or all old people or whatever? And by the way, I belong to the old people, so I'm, 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 I'm including myself in that group. None of those things, if you're being honest, none of those things is the thing that made you decide that you wanted to follow Jesus. Am I right? That's when you do the amen. It has nothing to do with the small stuff. And I'm not saying the small stuff isn't important. How funny the pastor is, that may be important to you. How well he speaks, that may be important to you. Or how well she speaks, that may be important to you. But that's not the major. It is a minor. The thing that wins you to Jesus is his love, is his grace, it's his forgiveness. It's knowing deep inside that somehow a perfect and holy God would look at you, who is so imperfect and so unholy, Yes, true, but he would look at you and say, you are my son, you are my daughter, and no one is going to take that away from me. And if you have that God, then what else matters? For real. They always say, blood runs thicker than water. It's true. And ain't no blood thicker than the blood of Jesus Christ. That's what binds you then what can separate you? Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, right? He's saying, remember who did this for you. And when you take communion later today, right, and we'll talk, we'll break the bread, you'll dip the wine. When you do it, remember who did this. Remember that it's Jesus that put his body on the line. It's remember it's Jesus whose blood literally spilled from his body. He's saying, do this in remembrance. I, who am I? Who am I, your Lord? I did this for you. One of my favorite movies of all time is still The Lion King, and it's because of this one scene that I absolutely love. Simba's been running around the wilderness. It's very biblical, actually, in some ways. He's been running in the wilderness, right? And then finally, Nala finds him and all that kind of stuff, right? And then, and then he kind of has to get his, uh, you know, sense knocked into him. And then do you remember that scene where he's, like, kind of running after Rafiki? If, have everyone seen this movie? If you haven't, that's so sad. Um, if you haven't seen the movie, you should really go watch it. I know it came out in 1996, and half of you weren't even bored by that, but it's okay. Um, in the movie, I, do I have to explain Lion King? What in the world is going on? Um, Simba is the son, right, and he runs away because his father gets killed, yada, yada, yada. His father is the king of, you know, the pride lands, and then he runs away, and then someone has to go find him, and they're like, dude, you gotta, you're, the, you're the son, like, or you got to come back, you got to be the king. You know, your uncle, your nasty uncle who, uh, you, know, d- you know, does crazy things, like he's running the thing, and he's ruining everything, so you got to come back, right? And then he goes, and he's like, no, I can't do it, like, I've been gone for so long, and then he has this thing because he thinks he killed his father, and there's all this drama and all this kind of stuff. But anyways, he goes, right? Whew. He goes, and there's this monkey, what is he? What, 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 what kind of monkey is he? Is he an ape? Orangutan? No, it's not orangutan. Bamboo. Baboon. Baboon. What? Baboon. Right? And he's got this stick. Right? And so Rafiki, the wise baboon monkey, he goes and finds, uh, you know, Simba. And then he, like, leads him to the wilderness. And they're, like, you know, frolicking through the wilderness. Right? And then he goes. And he's like, you have to. And he's like, come here. i got to show you something. Right? And he's like, what are you going to show me? And he goes. And then he goes, look, in the pond, right, is your father, he says. And then so Simba I was going to play the scene for you. Maybe I should have. It would have been better, but I wanted to be cool, right? So he goes, and he looks into the thing, right? And then, and then the, you know, the, the beauty of, uh, you know, animation, like the ripples, and you see, like, Simba's face, and he looks at it, and at first he's excited, and then he goes, oh, 
that's just me. And then Rafiq goes, no, look harder. I practice that for the week, right? So he says, look harder, right? And then he looks, and as he's looking, all of a sudden, it's like, it ripples, magic, and then all of a sudden, he's like magically looking up in the clouds, and in the clouds, his father, Mufasa, comes in the clouds. Okay, you're like, oh, and the music is like, you know, right? It's like dramatic and all this kind of stuff, right? And then this is what Mufasa says. Sorry for the Disney lesson. He says, Simba, you have forgotten and Simba goes, no, 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 I haven't. No, no, Father, I haven't. And he says, no, you've forgotten me. You are my son, which makes you king. But you have forgotten me. He says, remember me, and therefore remember you. I think that's why Jesus, not because he foresaw a lion king, but because that's what he's doing. I think that's why Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. Because we, we forget. We come in here and we gather in here and we forget that the reason why we can pray, that the reason why when the world around us is going crazy and people are shooting each other and killing each other and doing all these terrible things, that the reason why we can pray and pray for peace and pray for hope, the reason why we can sing, the reason why we can share and have other people pray for us, the reason why we can do all these things is because Jesus, the one Lord, the one God, who has his one faith, one baptism and one hope did everything so that you and I can live into the reality that is created for us because you and I, in believing in him and saying, I follow you, become his sons, his daughters, chosen and adopted by him forever. And he's saying, do not forget. Remember me. And he's saying, all you got to do is to walk to where you fit and where you believe that. Walk in a way where you fit into this reality. The reality that he's already won, that he's already done for you. It's why we gather like this each and every Sunday. Because Pastor Goose and I and all the leaders believe that we are united as one, one body. Yeah, it won't always look correct. Yeah, it won't always operate exactly the way that we want to. But indeed, we are one body. Maintained by the one faith, and our job is to preserve it, to be eager, to be diligent. To preserve that which God has already given to us. And so today, as we take this communion, I'll give you instructions in a little bit. Maybe you need to ask yourself, why, if you call yourself a Christian, ask yourself, why do I come here? Why is it that I'm a Christian? Because it's Jesus' blood that binds us. It's his cross that unites us. It's his resurrection that gives us hope. It's his love that we follow. And for those of you who maybe aren't, who are on the fence or thinking about it, then ask yourself, what is the reason why I'm even looking for something in the first place? And maybe that answer to you is Jesus. And as you do, one way we will maintain and preserve the unity that God has given to us. One way we will be eager and zealous and diligent to maintain it, to preserve it, to long suffer in humility and kindness and gentleness is to take the bread and the wine in remembrance of him. 
So in a little bit, the praise team's going to come up. I'm going to show you what to do. And as per the rules and, and also, the, I think, the understandings of communion, please take communion if you truly believe in what this communion represents. Take it as a way of saying to yourself and to others, but more so to God, that I believe in this bread and this wine. That I believe that that bread and that wine, that in me taking it, makes me a son and daughter of God. It signifies that I am and that I trust and I believe and I'm remembering who God is. And for those of you who aren't sure, I ask you to think about what that means for you. Think about what it means that the God of the world would come down as a human being, fully God, fully human, would take his life, put it onto a cross, break his body, shed his blood, and he would rise again three days later and ascend into the heaven so that you and I would do the same. Ask yourself, what does that mean for me? So I'm going to give you a minute to kind of just think and process to yourself. And my prayer for us as a group is that we will indeed walk into this unity day by day, through the ups and the downs, through the difficulties and all of it, knowing that it is God who binds us, Jesus' blood that unites us. And then may you do this in remembrance of him. Now as I invite the praise team up, I'm going to give you a couple of instructions. If you grew up in the Presbyterian Church, communion has always looked a little different for you. Generally, you get a little tiny thing, cup, and then you get a little piece of bread and you pick it up. Today, we're going to go a different way for time reasons, but also uh, for other couple of reasons. So today, what you're going to find is you're going to find there's four stations with bread and the wine. Again, grape juice. And you're going to find two people there standing, one with the bread in their hand and the other one with this cup. And then as you go up in your own time, as the first response song is playing, you'll go up and you'll go up to the usher or, or, the, or, the, or the server, and then you'll tear a piece of bread. Or if you feel uncomfortable because you think your hands are dirty, then have the usher uh, tear it for you. And you're going to take, and then you're going to just slightly dip a little bit into the grape, and then you're going to immediately take it. But prepare yourself so that when you do, you're ready to take as soon as you get up there. A couple of logistical notes. Don't go crazy on the, on the juice and try to dip your entire thing because then you get your fingers into it and that's not cool. And then also if you get too much uh, juice on there, then you can spill everywhere. That's not cool either. So just, you know, take it easy. A little bit of uh, juice is you're okay. Um, when you tear the bread, you know, tear a little bit. You can tear an okay chunk, but, you know, just tear a little bit and then you'll go. Um, and then again, but before all of those things, ask yourself, pray a little, spend time wondering what this is. Take your time and then take it when you need to. And then afterwards, we'll all sing in one last song of response together. But Jesus, at the final Last Supper, gathered his disciples together and at the end of the meal, arose from his place and he said to them, This is my body broken for you. And then he took the wine that was on the table and he took it, and then he poured it into a chalice, and he says, this is my blood spilled for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So will you, body of Christ, the church, 
the bride of the wonderful Lord and Savior, Jesus. When you are ready, take that which signifies the broken body and the blood spilt of our Lord, who rises in three days after his death to give you hope forever and ever. So take time to respond and pray as the music plays. And if the ushers or the servers could get to your stations, serve communion to yourself first in the places there. And then when you are ready, you will know to go. And you can go to any one of the four stations, whichever one's closest to you. And will you then take this communion, this meal, and do this remembrance of Jesus. Actually, let me pray for us really quickly, and then uh, Pastor Goose and the praise team will lead us in song, and then you will be ready as you prepare yourself to take this. So let me pray for us. Father, we give you thanks. Oh, what a grace that we can walk into this union, that we don't have to create anything for ourselves, that we can just do this in, in, in good faith, and that you've already done all the work for us and created this unity for us. And so, Father, we give you thanks. And we pray for each and every single one of us here that when we take it, that indeed your spirit would come alive in us, that we would know what it means to love you, we would know what it means to, to, to follow you, and, and that it would indeed strengthen us and, 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 and reinforce those binds, those, those bonds, God, to you and to one another. And help us into the new reality, walk into this unity you've given to us. That indeed, as we become one, your kingdom is shown and known. So would you be with us, all of us, one by one, as we take and remember who you are and who we are because of you. In Jesus' name, amen. Take your time and then...